Thank you for being here. Take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Micah. Last time Justin was deployed, I was teaching through Micah. We took a 15-month break until this deployment. (laughs) And so now we're getting back into the book of Micah. I don't like things left undone, so I thought we would return, try to finish this book up during his current deployment. Uh, Leading up to this chapter, Micah has foretold of the judgment to come upon Israel and Judah. The leadership in Micah, he's addressing the leadership. It had become so corrupted. And it starts at the top. I mean, God, he looks down on a nation. He looks at the leadership. Now, obviously, personally, in our homes and in our lives, God's interested in what we're doing. But oftentimes, you'll read what God is doing in nations, and and the rebuke is to the leadership. It's not so much to the, the folks. Take, for example, when Jesus showed up. You don't find Jesus railing against anybody but the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders. He was upset with the leadership in the land because they knew better. They knew what God had expected, and they knew what they should have been doing. And here in Micah, we find that everything had become corrupted in leadership because people were money-hungry. Wow. Is the Bible true or what? For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after... They have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so the land had been corrupted by leaders that were just looking for financial gain. The princes perverted judgment for reward. The prophets led the people astray by divining for money. And the priests taught falsehoods for hire. That's what Micah says over in chapter 3. And so all three groups, the princes or the judges in the land, the prophets, those spiritual leaders and the priests that should have been teaching the Word of God had all been corrupted because of money. I shouldn't say all. I mean, obviously you have men like Micah and Isaiah at this time that are coming in. But on the whole, these groups of people were just after money. And so chapter 3 of Micah closes with the prophecy that Zion would be plowed as a field, Jerusalem would become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. The Babylonians would come in to take Judah captive, and when they came into Babylon, they would just destroy the place. Judah would go into captivity for 70 years. Chapter 4, it opens up with hope for Zion. I'm just giving you background from where we were at. Chapter 4 opens up with this prophecy of hope. After all that God would allow to come upon Jerusalem, He wasn't finished with Zion yet. He still had plans. And we saw in the last lesson, last week, how like many Old Testament prophecies, this prophecy here in chapter 4, it has elements of a near fulfillment and a further out future, uh, more future fulfillment, if I can put it that way. Portions of this prophecy can easily be connected to when Judah came out of Babylonian captivity. Some of them can easily be applied to the gospel times, and others look forward to the millennial reign of Christ. And so if you missed last week, you're going to have to listen to it to get the details because I'm not going to cover it again. Well, let's continue our study this morning by reading verses 8 through 13. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? 
For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. Now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, let her eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. And I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, thank you this morning we can gather together for Sunday school. Thank you for every teacher, and I pray that you would bless them. May each class honor and glorify you. And we pray now that you would open our understanding that we might understand the Scriptures, and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. So we find in these verses a continuation of the prophecy in verses 1 through 7. There have been several conjectures of what is meant by the tower of the flock. Where is it located and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to chase those down. I got tired of researching it. Instead, I just want to tell you that it makes sense to me that the context is still in Zion. I say that because a lot of people will say the tower of the flock is Bethlehem. It's fine if you have that opinion. 2 Samuel 5.7 says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. So it makes sense to me that we're still in Jerusalem in context. We're still talking about Zion. And it, it best fits what we know as the Tower of David. It's called a stronghold here. And in Song of Solomon, in trying to impress his woman, he says this in Song of Solomon 4.4, Thy neck is like the Tower of David. Amen, Shug? Build it for an armory. Whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. That's your neck. Now, guys, that might work for you. I don't know, but it's not working in my, my relationship. I, I tried to tell my wife, your, your neck is like the, the steeple of Liberty Baptist. It just, just didn't work. Now, in the second half of verse 8, we see that unto Zion shall come the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. I believe the first dominion here is referring to what I like to call Israel's glory days. The first dominion. At the time when David and Solomon reigned, it was a time that there was great expansion under King David. Under Solomon, it was a time of peace and prosperity, just this wonderful time in Israel's history, a time that the people longed for. And we kind of can relate to that in America now, right? As we get more and more off course, we think about the good old days, whatever that means for you. And they are longing for this time of prosperity. But once Israel was divided after they captured all this land, after they had peace and prosperity, after the kingdom was divided after Solomon's death, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam took the two houses of Israel, Israel never regained her former glory. When Judah returned from Babylonian captivity, there wasn't anything resembling a return to the first dominion. When they returned from captivity, 
they were still under Gentile control. And so you have Israel coming out of captivity. Woohoo, great. Well, the Persians take over the Babylonians. They kind of have control. And then the Greeks take over the Persians. They kind of have control. And then the Romans come in and take over the Greeks, and now they have control. And we know that's the scene when Jesus shows up. And, of course, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. And uh, anyway, there hasn't been a king is what I'm going to get to here in a minute. And so they, they were under this Gentile control, but Israel was always hopeful of a return to the kingdom of David, the first dominion. And they knew it was prophesied to happen under the Messiah. Everybody knew that in Israel. Uh, the Pharisees uh, knew that. They understood that. The religious Jews knew that. And you may recall in Numbers 24, Balaam, he comes to speak to Balak and he gives a prophecy which he begins by saying, Come therefore and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. And so uh, Balaam here sets the context. This is going to happen in the latter days. And it says in Numbers 24, verses 17 through 19, this is what Balaam said, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. So you see, they understood there was coming a day that the Messiah would arrive and they would have dominion once again. But sadly, what we find is they were more interested in political deliverance than they were the spiritual deliverance that they really needed. And that sounds too familiar to our situation in America today. See also the God and Country rally that I preached last week. We understand the need for a political revolution, but are we willing to do it as an appeal to heaven or just don't tread on me? Israel had the don't tread on me mindset. We want, we want our kingdom back. We want, our, uh, we, we want to have that part of it back. But don't talk to me about appealing to heaven. I don't want to have to deal with my spirituality. And that was their problem. And so they were looking for a political upheaval that would take them out from under Gentile control. And we're no different today. I believe we're seeing some great things happen, but until we make the connection spiritually, it's not going to come to fruition. God's not just going to bless just because a bunch of people are against the government. But it's when we start getting right with God. And so as a result of being politically focused, once the Messiah did arrive, the nation of Israel as a whole, they missed the arrival of the Messiah. Because in their minds, the Messiah was going to get them back to the first dominion. And there He is dying on a cross. And so this whole focus was on, let's get back to the, the prosperity that we had. Let's get out from under Gentile dominance. And they missed it. They missed the kingdom, even though it was clearly proclaimed throughout Israel that the kingdom had come. They missed it. Like so many today. 
the angel Gabriel said to the Virgin Mary in Luke 1, 31 through 33, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. Listen now. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. You say, well, that doesn't really prove anything. Well, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went forth preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 4.23 it says, Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew 10.7, Jesus sent out the twelve saying, as ye go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From John the Baptist on, you will find the kingdom is mentioned in all but five chapters in Matthew. And two of those are the last two chapters where all the attention is on Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, there are so many references to the kingdom, I took them out, which was frustrating because I went through all the trouble of putting them in. Amen. I'm glad that resonated with y'all. You know. All right. so I, put all these, I had to take them out. I'm still going to give you a bunch. But I had to remove the majority of them from my notes. And my point is this. When Micah prophesied that the kingdom would come, It did arrive with the Messiah. It it was the focus of their message. It was widely proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And I believe it's important to see that the kingdom of God has been established in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to these references. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said what? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So how can you seek what doesn't exist? Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. How can a kingdom that doesn't exist suffer violence? Jesus said it was suffering violence. In Matthew 12, 28, Jesus said, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. That's pretty clear. Some of you have no idea why I'm making a big deal of this. Other, other of, of you do. Um, anyway, I'm just going to leave it there. Jesus plainly said, If I cast out devils, the kingdom of God is come to you. The kingdom must have arrived because Jesus was casting out devils. In Matthew 13, Jesus spoke extensively on the kingdom. He said to His disciples that unto them it was given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He likened the kingdom as a man which sowed good seed in his field. He likened the kingdom to a grain of mustard seed. He likened the kingdom of heaven to leaven. All of those things is is referring to the spiritual growth and expansion of the kingdom. He likened the kingdom to a treasure hidden afield. He likened the kingdom unto the merchant man seeking goodly pearls. He likened the kingdom to a net cast in the sea which gathered of every kind... And in Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man shall send forth His angels and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. How can angels gather people out of the kingdom if the kingdom hasn't already come? This is important prophetically because we understand there's the millennial reign of Christ. There's going to be a a thousand year reign of Christ upon this earth. 
I don't know any other way to get around that when you get to Revelation. People say, well, that's when the kingdom comes. Well, not according to the passages I'm reading you. There must be an aspect of this that is spiritual. There must be, if Jesus said, if I cast out demons, the kingdoms come unto you, then the kingdom must have come. If if the angels are going to come, which happens before the millennial reign, to gather people out of the kingdom, the kingdom must have already been established. Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said to Peter, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, he's long dead and gone. Amen. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the kingdom must have been in their day if Jesus was going to give the keys to Peter. In Matthew 16, 28, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they shall see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now that verse has given people a lot of... How how can people in that day see the kingdom coming when they clearly died before Jesus has even come back? I think think we misunderstand that passage because we're not looking at it understanding that when Jesus rose again, kingdom, I mean, it's here. That generation saw the kingdom coming when the Son of Man uh, is coming in His kingdom. He came up out of the grave, amen? And I think sometimes we just want to look at it so structured as, okay, when Jesus comes back and He sets up His kingdom... So what does this mean when it says that there be some standing there which shall not taste of death? See, because you get into this whole literal and spiritual thing. Well, you got to look at it literally. you got to look at it spiritually. you got to look at it this way and that way. And that's why I like to just blow people's minds while I literally believe it's spiritual. What? And so you have here this kingdom that those in that day would see coming. That's what Jesus said. Are we taking it literal or not? You see the problem? Well, this is good, man, I'm telling you. Uh, Matthew 19, 24 and 25. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? Now, isn't that interesting? The disciples rightly equated entering into the kingdom as being saved. Isn't that what, isn't that what just took place in that conversation? A rich man can hardly enter. The, if a rich man can hardly enter the kingdom of heaven, how can he be saved? In Matthew 24, 40, 21, 43, Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given unto a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. How could a kingdom be taken away if it was still way off into the future? Matthew 23, 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. <laughs> it's off to a good start right there, Amen. Um, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And again, how can they prevent others from entering a kingdom that has not yet existed? So make no, no, make no mistake about it. The, the kingdom came just as Micah prophesied, and it came with Christ. The religious Jews' problem was they were looking for the political kingdom, an earthly political kingdom in their day. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem upon a donkey, people spread their garments in the way. Remember all that? They cut down branches. They straw them in the way. And Mark 11, 9 and 10 says, 
And they went before, and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They understood Messiah was associated with kingdom. They understood that. The problem was they're looking at it more from an earthly perspective. It was, blessed be the kingdom of our father David. They didn't understand that the greater David had arrived on the scene in Christ. And so instead of saying, blessed be the kingdom of our father David, they should have been saying, blessed be the kingdom of God. They weren't looking for forgiveness of sins. They were looking for political prosperity and independence. They wanted the glory days of Solomon, but remember Jesus said, Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And how disappointed they were when Jesus didn't reinstate the kingdom. When they didn't get that political deliverance. It was the whole whole basis by which they were going to prove this man was not the Messiah. Jesus had come to establish a heavenly spiritual kingdom. This is something he made abundantly clear. Listen to this passage. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. And when he, speaking of Jesus, was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. So the Pharisees arrive. Tell us when the kingdom's going to come. He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That's Jesus' words. Jesus was saying, stop looking with natural eyes on the political scene. Stop looking for a physical, earthly, political kingdom because you're not going to observe it that way. But rather, you need to understand that the kingdom of God is first spiritual and it is found within the child of God. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, what Paul is saying there, the kingdom is not physical, it's spiritual. It's not meat and drink. It's not physical things. It's peace. It's righteousness. It's joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Again, not physical, spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that should settle it right there. If flesh and blood can't enter in, it must not be physical. Colossians 1, 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into His kingdom and glory. The redeemed are the ones who are brought into God's kingdom. Hebrews 12.28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Revelation 1.9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom. John said, I'm your companion in the kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our Lord is physically returning to this earth. Amen? Whoop! He is setting up a thousand-year reign. There is going to be the millennial reign of Christ. But to suggest that any time we read the phrase, the kingdom, that it has to be set off into this way-off, far-off period 
is not right biblically. I've given you the proof. And so we have to understand that Jesus did establish a kingdom on His first arrival. And obviously my point is that when Micah says that the first dominion and the kingdom shall come to Jerusalem, I believe that it's speaking also of this present age in which we live. If you are born again, you are in the kingdom. We are living in the age of, of that first dominion, if you will. The glory days of the... It doesn't get no better than Christ. And Jesus was clear that the gospel of the kingdom was to be first preached in Jerusalem. It's, it's talking about the first dominion is going to come to Zion. Isn't that what the Bible says? That they were to go to Jerusalem first. To the Jew first. Also the Greek. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then the uttermost parts. Now after foretelling of, these, uh, of this glorious day to come in verse 8, the scene in verse 9 here returns to Judah's distresses in their captivity. Would you look at verse 9 again? Now why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Though in the last days, which is the... The context at the beginning of chapter 4, though in, the, though in the last days the kingdom would come to Jerusalem, she still had to go through the consequence of her sin of rejecting Christ. Listen, it's a painful process when God begins to deal with us in our sinfulness. In Christ we're saved, our sins are washed away, we understand that. But you also know this, that the way of the transgressor is hard. And God has to deal with that. And the consequences of that, we don't get to choose. I know we pray for crop failure, amen. We sow wicked seeds, amen. Lord, don't, don't let that crop come up. But we don't know. We don't know how God's going to deal with us. And I'm telling you, Jerusalem here, they rejected Christ. And I can tell you, everybody who rejects Christ in this life, they're going to suffer the consequences. And so they're going to go through this painful process. She's going to cry out aloud in pain as a woman experiencing travail in childbirth. And all the mothers said, Amen. They would be left with no earthly king, no wise counselors. In other words, Micah is saying, Look, you're going to lose your national identity. And that was heartbreaking. I mean, just read what Jeremiah had to say as he wept over the fact that the Babylonians were coming in there in lamentations and, and taking them away. They lost their political identity. They lost their king. They lost their struck. They lost their political clout and power and, and all of that. But isn't this interesting here? This is presented as a question in verse 9. Why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy, is, is thy counselor perished? You see, they may have lost Zedekiah when they were taken captive. And they may have had no one to sit on the throne afterwards. But God wanted to be their king. And that's important to understand. God wanted to be their king. They may not have had any wise counselors yet left. But the Messiah would come of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that scepter would come, that star would rise out of Jacob. 
And in Christ, he would have all the wisdom of the Father. They would have a wise counselor in Christ. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Does anybody know the next one? Counselor. What does Micah say? Is there no counselors in thee? There's one coming. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God had always desired to be their king. But they consistently rejected his authority. 1 Samuel 12, 12 speaks of the time before Israel had an earthly king. And it says, quote, when the Lord your God was your king. And, in, and God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, they've rejected me that I should not reign over them. See, God wanted to be their king, but they rejected his reign, his authority. And so God brought them through very difficult circumstances in an attempt to have the people once again have God as their king to reign over them. God kept trying, He kept trying, but at last when Christ was here, they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. You know, sometimes, get this now, sometimes God has to bring us through very challenging, very difficult times. You know why? Because God's trying to get us to realize, I'm supposed to be king in your life. Not you. Or whatever you've placed above God. And so God, He brings us through these difficult times. They're painful, aren't they? It's a painful process to be broken. It's a painful process to be humbled. It can be a painful process to realize you're not in control. Amen. So Zion would cry out aloud in pain as a woman experiencing travail in childbirth. There'd be no earthly king left. There'd be no wise counselors. You know, the choice is ours, isn't it? You decide whether or not God's going to reign in your life. Nobody forces you to turn away from God. Nobody forces you to go to God. It's your decision. It's up to you if God's going to reign as king in your life. You know, God needs to be in His rightful place. The ark was taken away, and it, it sat out for decades. Eventually, they put God back in His rightful place. Not that we can command God or anything like that. You understand what I'm saying. We need to put God back in His rightful place. The ark doesn't need to be off in Kerjap, Jerem, or whatever it was at. All these other places. It needs to be in His rightful place. God needs to be where He belongs in your life. Or else you're going to go... Because if you don't accept the easy way, if you reject the easy way, God's going to take you through the difficult way. And that's where people either get bitter or they, they come back. And so in verse 10, we see the continuation of the picture of a woman in pain laboring to bring forth a child. If you've ever been in a delivery room, you've been somewhere, amen. Would you look at verse 10? Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city. And thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There thou shalt be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. 
So why the illustration of this woman in childbirth? Why this travail? Because the captivity would be a painful process. But after 70 years of captivity, God would deliver them. Just as a woman delivers a child, God would deliver them from Babylon at the decree of Cyrus. The Lord would redeem them from the hand of their enemies. Listen to what Hosea 3, 4 and 5 says. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, and without a sacrifice, and without an image, and without an ephod, and without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. So Hosea was saying, you're going to be without a king, just like Micah's talking about here. Where's your king? Where's your counselor? But he looks forward to the later days, latter days, and he talks about the time that Christ would come. And, and though they would go through this hard process because of their transgressions, God was not going to cast them off forever. And there would be joy in Judah once again when they were delivered. Just as when a woman who is in travail and going through such great pain and she delivers that child, there's joy. John 16, 20-22 Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. I can remember when Adrian gave birth, and I'll just say she was happy after the delivery. Amen. And, and Jesus was saying, once that child is delivered, there's joy. And Micah is saying, you're going to go through pain. You're going to have that labor pain. But what does it say there? You're going to be delivered. And once there was deliverance, there was going to be joy once again. These agonies that Judah would go through, what we're being told here is there are not, they are not agonies unto death. These agonies are unto life. There was still going to be hope for Judah. And I want to jump ahead just for a second because if I don't get to finish the lesson, I wanted to get to this point. So we have all this talk about a woman in travail and, and, and being delivered from captivity, Babylonian captivity. These birth pangs here that we're talking about, they're ultimately going to lead to the Messiah. And it's so interesting to me. I love it. As I was studying this, I was going to have a fit. You read in chapter 4, and there's all this talk about being in pain as a woman in travail. It's going to be look, look, at, look at chapter 5 and verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting. It's a great prophecy of our Messiah's birth. And here we have all this talk about these birth pains and, and just the difficulty Judah is going to go through. But Judah, don't lose hope. The Messiah is coming. He's going to, he's going to be delivered from Mary. He's, he's going to come forth. And just as Judah would be delivered out of physical Babylonian captivity, so we could have spiritual deliverance in our Lord Jesus Christ from our Sin captivity. Amen? 
We get victory in Christ. And all we got to do is trust in Him alone for salvation. Listen to this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking. Actually, he's, he's reading from Isaiah. But the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. We'll have to stop there. Amen. And so our Lord Jesus Christ offers us deliverance. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to admit that you need deliverance. And our Lord Jesus Christ said, Whosoever will call upon me shall be saved. So listen, if you need Christ, if you need to be delivered of your sin, there's forgiveness in Christ. If you are saved, let God reign in your life. Learn the easy way. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You don't want to learn the hard way. Amen? Let's pray. We'll have a break, and then we'll reconvene at 11. Let's pray.